This is Bonjour Chai, the entire world is a very narrow tunnel edition. I'm Avi Feingold and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we cover scandals in the Canadian Jewish Federation system, well, a small one at least, Harvard copycats and various other um, academia shenanigans that are going on, and of course, the tunnels in New York, not just the Holland and the Lincoln Tunnels. We're talking about the tunnels in Crown Heights. All this and so much more coming up right after this. Phoebe, how's it going? All right. How are you doing, Afi? Doing all right. It's been a while. Yes, it has, but we we're are back. back. We're, we're back. back. <laughs> How was your, your break? Uh, it was all right. How about yours? Uh, it was good. We had a bit of a road trip. Did you do anything fun? I stayed in Toronto with my family, and I got whether or not it was COVID, who knows, so did not do anything very exciting. Um, so Avi, you went on a, a road trip. I, I did a road trip. We, we, were, we have a Tesla now, so we're, we were both sort of limited, but are excited by like saying to ourselves, like, how many, how far can we go, like, knowing that we have to charge it every once in a while or overnight at a hotel or whatnot. Um, we went to Nashville, Tennessee for a few days, which was kind of fun with kids. Uh, Country Music Hall of Fame. We took the kids to a honky-tonk. Believe it or not, mm. if, if there all the honky tonks on Music Row, if you're it's like before 6 p.m., you could bring the kids in and listen to music and uh, feel like you're taking your kids to a dive bar and feeling very, uh, <laughs> very good parent- <laughs> parenting skills with that. Well, one. it's like in the UK, you can take your kids to a pub. Yeah. Right. So, I, apparently, I, I've seen I, this on television. Um, um, so that was fun. And uh, yeah, we on the way back, we stayed overnight in Louisville, Kentucky at this beautiful hotel, uh, the Hotel Geneviève. Um, very 80s uh, European vibe uh, going for it, I think. And uh, it was really cool and uh, and uh, watched some movies. I, I watched uh, Maestro finally. Did you watch Maestro? No, no, I oh, have not. Oh, uh, you know, Bradley Cooper and, and the nose. I know who a... he is, and I remember the nose, yes. <laughs> there was yes. a... How my... big was the nose? Was it, did it seem like some kind of comical prosthetic, or did he just look like a man whose nose is a bit bigger than Bradley Cooper's? Uh, both. Okay. I, I would say very, very much both. To me, the, the so, highlight of the movie yeah. was the, not that, but the fact that there's a scene where he's wearing a sweatshirt that says Harvard in Hebrew. Okay. Because he's in Tanglewood, and he's showing... Like, okay. Yeah, it was kind of funny, but... Yeah. Would it be? Okay. He, he really embodied Bernstein, I think, that okay. he, you know, he fit into his nose quite well, and that was it. It was both very Jewish, it had a lot of uh, goyish stuff, but it had a lot of big Jewish energy. To me, uh, I mean, the, the other sleeper thing... Big nobody, Jewish energy. I've never heard that one before. The other, okay. the other highlight was, like, nobody told me Sarah Silverman was in it. And I was oh, like, really? well, that was fun, yeah. And, I did and not she, know that. She's got some good I assume no, energy. no... Um, Physical alterations to make Sarah no, Silverman. No, Sarah Silverman uh, is Sarah Silverman always okay. uh, and, and will be. But I, uh, I look. I heard something this morning. You you were on a you were, you were on a podcast this week. Uh, somebody else's. Are you I, cheating? I on was. Me? I'm I'm cheating. <laughs> well, I already am podcast polygamous because I do already. I'm also on Feminine Chaos, so I, that's another podcast. So I was on as a guest. I was on yet another podcast, um, Canada Land Shortcuts with Jesse Brown. I went in person to the studio um, in Toronto, which is, you know, also the city where I live. So it wasn't super like I I don't want to play up the the travel aspects of this. I did just like go to a different neighborhood, but it was super exciting because it's like an actual in-person studio. And I appeared on the podcast and talked about the not very upbeat topic of anti-Semitism in Canada these days and not anti-Semitism vibes, but like anti-Semitic acts such as, um, you know, attacks on like places that are selling food and whatnot and um, protests that gather um, at a road that just happens to be a residential area where a lot of Jews live. So yeah, we talked about that. Um, And yeah, hopefully um, brought some listeners from there to here. Um, So hello, if you are coming here, um, having listened to some Canada land, we are also in the land of Canada ourselves. We are. (laughs) Um, Speaking of uh, Canada and Canadian media, there was a uh, fascinating little mini story that uh, piqued my curiosity, um, mainly because I know one of the the, the actors involved in this, um, not acting actors like 
Bradley Cooper, but one of the people involved in this story. There was this crazy little story that I picked up by CBC and Jerusalem Post and others about how the the head of the Windsor Jewish Federation, Dan Brotman, was... Um, you know, called out publicly for uh, something that he did. He had a Facebook event uh, that he was celebrating an online workshop for Jewish professionals that were considering relocation to Windsor. And um, he was talking about... um, there was a bunch of uh, Israeli doctors that apparently were part of this because, you know, relicensing for medical professionals was part of the discussion. And Paul Hirschhorn, who is the uh, consul general... uh, in Montreal for Quebec and the Atlantic Canada, uh, the Atlantic provinces from Israel, right? So these Israeli consulate, he's uh, somebody that I know uh, more than just an acquaintance. He's been at our house for Shabbat. He called him out and he's like, wait, you're actively like weakening Israel's ability to treat our wounded. Um, and we need doctors in Israel now more than ever. And this is like a horrible thing that you're doing, actively encouraging them to leave Israel. Um, and then this blew up online. And uh, I was like, you know, in in one way, I was like, yeah, there's cities that always promote their uh, Jewish, you know, life and come to move to Cincinnati, come to move to Vancouver. We have a great Jewish community. We have great Jewish day schools. We have restaurants. We have all this stuff. Um, but, but I guess he read it as not just encouraging Jews to move to a neighborhood, but from Israel. And while we always are encouraging Jews to move uh, to Israel, I guess he was like, hey, we need Jews in Israel. We don't need Jews out of Israel. Um, I thought that was like a little um, interesting in terms of a spat. It really got me thinking about the nature of moving to versus from Israel and whether we actively, like we believe in Aliyah, we believe in, you know, as a concept, a lot of Jews do think that we should all be making uh, Aliyah to Israel. Um, do a lot I of know, Jews think that all Jews should make Aliyah to Israel? I think that some Jews think that all Jews should make Aliyah. I mean, I'm sure Aliyah. I know some people <laughs> think this, yes. but uh, A lot of Jews think that some Jews should make Aliyah. Okay. And some Jews think no Jews should make Aliyah. <laughs> and those those <laughs> Jews probably don't use that term for it. Correct, yes. Um, and I was like, it's inevitable that Jews are going to leave Israel. Um, and whether we should encourage those people to move to other, to establish Jewish communities, maybe that's a thing. Maybe it's in bad taste to do it now. Um, I thought that, you know, Hershon had a definite legitimate claim with this idea that he had a conf- this Dan Brotman, who is the head of the Winter Jewish Federation, also has this um, side hustle as uh, a consultant for helping people relocate internationally, which is a bit of a conflict of interest. If you think that you're promoting people and you're promoting Israel, but then you're also actively promoting people to move uh, out of Israel. So that in and of itself, there's a personal conflict of interest. But I, I was like, just curious about like, you know, and it got me thinking about the nature of how do we support diaspora communities while also supporting Israel communities. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's about mm-hmm. it. All right. Anyways, well, yeah. Um, you, uh, there's some craziness also that I need you to explain to me um, that in the interim since we have you know spoken, uh, Claudine Gay has resigned. Uh, she's the president of Harvard. She was um, the president. She of Harvard. was That's the right. president of Harvard, ostensibly over some uh, plagiarism allegations, which mm-hmm. were likely founded. Um, but since then, um, Neri Oxman, who is the wife of the uh, one of the activist board members at Harvard that was calling for the resignation, she herself was called out for plagiarism as well. I, I, I haven't been following it too closely. Can you give me the, the main points of what's been happening and why I should care? Yeah, so that, that actually was a pretty good summary of um, what's been happening for somebody who needs something explained. I think, I think you have the, the contours of this pretty well established, although I, I, I'll add a bit about the significance of these things. So basically, Bill Ackman, the, is he Bill? I believe so, yeah. Bill, the billionaire Ackman, okay, who is apparently a billionaire, which good for him. Um, he was one of the ones really leading the charge against Claudine Gay and basically saying he's going to root out um, plagiarism and anti-Semitism in the Ivy League and beyond, or MIT is not technically Ivy League, whatever, you know, he's going to you know, cleanse academia. Hence the beyond. Of, yes. Cleanse academia of all of this sort of all the cheaters and anti-Semites. Well, so when Business Insider figured out that 
Neri Oxman, his wife, who had been until pretty recently, it was like 2021 or something, she'd been a professor at, or 2020, I don't know, she'd been a professor at MIT, a tenured professor at MIT. She left this, it sounds like, either to raise a family or to start her own company or some combination um, fairly recently. Not in scandal is the point. She did not leave MIT in scandal. But basically, it Business Insider figured out that in her, I guess it was in her dissertation, she had uh, put a bunch of stuff unattributed, simul- Claudine Gay style type copying and pasting without attribution. Now, anybody looking at this from the outside is going to say, okay, this is like, this is the same thing as Claudine Gay did, basically. Obviously, different significance because Claudine Gay was the president of Harvard, Neri Oxman is rich, famous, stunningly good-looking. She's an Israeli-American woman. She is, like, one of the best-looking women oh, yeah. on the she, planet. She was rumored to have dated Brad Pitt at some yes, point. Yes, yes, and that is that is plausible. When you look at her, you're like, okay, that adds up. Sure, why not? Um, yeah, so... Um, and I have Wickedly another... smart. She, for years, yes, was, like, yes. going, went always on these lists of, like, 100 people to watch or... Yes, so um, I think she'd be, like, the yeah. perfect woman. I, and I blogged about this because it's I'm kind of obsessed with this. I think she'd have been, like, the perfect woman for Fraser Crane. I keep talking about Fraser, oh, really? but I think Fraser <laughs> would have loved her because he has this thing for Jewish women, successful women, and women with highbrow tastes. And she apparently is really into classical music. Oh, she, so She's not yeah. into tossed salads and scrambled eggs. <laughs> They're calling again. Um, but the point is, Neri Oxman, so like the best you could say, I think about this, if you're looking at this from the outside, is maybe she did do the same thing as Claudine Gay, but she's not in any kind of position of influence in academia where this is relevant. She's now, like she designed some mask for Bjork or something. Like she's, she does all sort of interesting stuff. She's in, in the design area. Design area, right? but design and in, in bi- uh, biological, yes, uh, bio... Yes architecture yes. and stuff like that. Yes. There's a whole episode of Abstract on Netflix that I saw okay. about her work, which was kind of interesting. I mean, uh, she seems obviously like one of the world's sort of like top achievers but, in all realms. So you're it's, saying that like in the, in the private sector, if this gets discovered, it's up to private companies to say, well, we don't really care. We still think that she's brilliant. Uh, but in, if you're representing a public institution, this is a more cardinal sin. Private versus public, but I mean, it's, I mean, Harvard's also private. It's more about like, are you in the, in the field of higher education or not? Are you the, the role model for all the, the exactly. students yeah. who have to, you know, not plagiarize their work? It looks ridiculous if the president of a university has plagiarized and then you're telling, you're kicking a student out or whatever, punishing them for cheating. Then yeah, obviously that's, there's more of an issue there. But I guess what I'm saying is though, Bill Ackman, understandably, he is her husband, doesn't see it like this and has been posting, as I put it in the CJN column about this, posting through it. He has been making really, really long posts on X, formerly Twitter, where he um, is trying to explain why it's not the same thing and how absolutely unfair it's been to her that this is being reported on or something. And look, it's her husband, right? So that makes sense that he would feel this way. Does anybody who's not her husband need to agree? I don't know. I mean, it's just, the point is that it's like, there's the sort of the, it, what this reminded me of is basically every time there's one of these cycles where it's decided that one thing is the thing that matters. So at one point it was sexism, like with me too. And then it was sort of um, racism um, with the 2020 reckoning and Black Lives Matter and whatever, whenever one person was going around doing the jacuzzi at everybody else, you knew that their own posts, work, whatever was going to be combed through for did they do the same thing that they're accusing other people of. And sure enough, here you go. I mean, it's not Bill Ackman himself, but it's his wife, which so, is, yeah. So that's, that's sort of the, the, some of the contours of it. That doesn't get at the significance part. So in this case, I'm reading a lot and I'm not sure. And you went a lot further in academia than I ever did. And I think you even are more recent in the academic world than I have been. Um, what is the nature of this like distinction that 
Claudine Gay was trying to make about, well, it's not really plagiarism, or with Neri Oxman, the core of the idea is my original thing, and there's just some, I, some elements that got borrowed, but it wasn't even elements of my main idea. Is there a distinction to be made in terms of plagiarism? This is very rabbinic, and I'm trying to be sure. No, I see what it. you're, I see right? what you're like, doing. Yes. Is there actually legs to this type of argument to say, well, it's not really plagiarism when the major idea that I'm bringing is very much my own, but when I was quoting and I was just coming loose about the general sense of where things were or what's, you know, giving background, I ended up pulling a paragraph here or there. Is there a distinction to be made about that? I think there's a distinction to be made between idea theft and sloppiness. And a dissertation, and I, I can say this having written a doctoral dissertation myself, it's, it is like a term paper or like it's really just a, as one of my advisors told me to think of it when writing it so that it wouldn't seem so daunting. Um, it's basically just a bunch of term papers stapled together. So what that means is this is not a type of writing that's like copy edited and edited, edited and polished you know, it, it's got typos in it. Every dissertation is going to have some typos in it. You have to then sort of fix those at the end often, but it's like after you defend even. But I don't think that anybody's handing in a dissertation without any typos. There's a type of, like, if somebody forgot quotes once or something, could say, okay, maybe that was a typo. It's still plagiarism if you copy and paste from whether it's Wikipedia or a book or whatever, if you just copy words and don't attribute them that's still plagiarism. It's not that I think this idea that, that this thing of, oh, well, I had an original idea. That's great. You have to have original ideas to be published in academia. That's the requirement. You have to say that this is your idea. And if it was somebody else's idea, yeah, that's, that's a problem. But that doesn't make it okay to copy passages of text. I mean, like then to just turn it back to like, I mean, cause again, this is just homework. A dissertation is homework. If some, you know, student turns in their homework and they came up with an original idea and the what a wonderful original idea it was, but they've just copied like half of the, but they've, you know, pasted it together with like just newspaper articles they've read, you know, even if their idea is original, it's still plagiarism. So what you're saying is, is that the, um, the main, you agree you that have the to main quote. Core, you have to say what yeah, you have to cite your sources. Yeah, it's, it's, it would theoretically be a rap on the knuckles, right, in, in life, but the fact that in school you have to be very precise about this means that it's still technically a expellable if you're a student or fireable offense if you're a professor um, because in this realm, being extremely precise is something that is fireable. So you can't go and say, well, it doesn't really go against, it doesn't really cut into my main thesis, but I was sloppy. Being sloppy is the thing you're supposed to prevent when it comes to plagiarism at all costs when you're a student, when you're writing, meaning when you're not, you know, Yeah, I mean, I think, I think what I would say is that there are like, um, so it's not... Like there's a certain type of writing that's just kind of practical writing in any sort of business. That's just like text that's used um, to communicate. That's not necessarily even having any pretense of originality. It's going to be different there. But also, I yeah, think yeah. it really is this question. It keeps coming back for me to this question of can you look students in the eye and say, don't plagiarize, but say, oh, but I did. But it was fine because I had very brilliant mm -hmm. ideas. Then you just seem like an asshole. So I think that's um, okay. that's why I think it would be different. So in the two cases. And also, I think there's the question of was Neri Oxman personally a hypocrite because it, it was really her husband who's leading this charge? You know what I mean? So like that, the part of this that doesn't totally sit right with me is like, of course, he's going to be on the side of his own wife. That's normal. And that's not weird. And that's not specific to some like eccentric billionaire or whatever you want. You know, like that's very normal. It's not he's not the one who plagiarized. You know what I mean? So I feel like there's something a little bit weird about the like, time. but she, at the same time, she is a public figure and, you know, it clearly does show that like he has, he, his zero tolerance of plagiarism is not actually zero tolerance of plagiarism. Yeah. Um, so let's take that step back. Why is this significant for the world, for the Jews? Yes. Okay. So that, that I think is um, perhaps the so it's all gossipy and funny, but maybe the more interesting part for our audience would be why does this have anything to do with Jews? Well, it does and it doesn't. Um, so I believe Bill Ackman is also Jewish. Neri Oxman, clearly Israeli-American. Um, 
you know, find it. But what's particularly interesting here is the way that what had started as this question of anti-Semitism on campus, right? Anti-Semitism on specifically elite U.S. college campuses. There were these congressional hearings, and that's where Claudine Gay and two other university presidents were grilled. One of them lost her job before Claudine Gay, so it wasn't just a Claudine Gay specific thing. Um, it's the presidents of MIT and Penn. But basically, there had been this whole thing that was supposed to be that was done in the name of Jews, rooting out anti-Semitism to make things better for Jewish students. There was just Ron DeSantis in Florida saying that he's going to make it so that Jews can go to, can, what is it, that they can like leave Ivy League schools and go to school in Florida or whatever. Um, there's all of this stuff happening in the name of Jews, but that has become extremely sort of detached from anything to do with actual, like any Jews' concerns, apart from the concerns specifically of Jews who are Bill Ackman and Neri Oxman, specifically, suddenly it's plagiarism. The topic is not anti-Semitism, it's plagiarism. What's being rooted out of academia is suddenly plagiarism. And why? It doesn't even really have to do with anti-Semitism. It's all about conservatives not liking academia for decades. It's about conservatives not liking uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in, in more recent years. People are basically fighting it's like this proxy thing, you know, like, but it isn't really about Jews. It's about other people, some of whom happen to be Jewish, arguing about unrelated things. So it's Jews kind of becoming this idea, and then actual concerns Jews have are brought up or not, but it doesn't really, it's not really about Jews, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a lot um, that happens a lot. I think that it's one of those, uh, you're basically saying that uh, the whole nothing about us without us is uh, should be applying to Jews as well, and we shouldn't be used as tools and as proxies for a larger fight amongst right. the world. Right. Yes. I mean, the only thing that's that's confusing about this is a lot of the actual people involved in these conversations are Jewish, and you know, I, I think Bill Ackman is trying to root out anti-Semitism on campus. I don't think that that's you know <laughs> whether I agree with his tactics or not is something else, but like. I do think he cares about this, you know what I mean? But I do think that there are also these bigger issues that um, Jews, I, I don't think it's beneficial to Jews to be put in the center of things that are not really about us. Yeah, and academia is about academia. It just happens to be that there's a lot of Jews that go there. Um, and the anti-Semitism issue on campus is big, but so many of the other issues that are being discussed or fought about in the academic settings have to do with academia at large and not just Jews who happen to be in academia. Right. I mean, the, the anti-Semitism yeah. on campus question just seems to have gotten forgotten. That, that seems to have fallen out of interest in favor of With this of specific talking. story, with the plagiarism. Yeah, well, it's become a plagiarism story. And yeah. suddenly plagiarism is the big crime and people are, you know, trying to root out the plagiarists. And that is easier to do with, like, technology, you, you know? You know what I'm curious about? How many people have gone and looked for Elise Stefanik's thesis? Oh, boy. <laughs> Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. The, the story that seems to have uh, captured the world's attention for the past couple of days that is deeply involving Jews and actually is a very, very... Deeply, Jewish deeply, story. deeply, literally deeply. Oh, my God. There, there are going to be many, many um, puns and discussions so. about this. So. Um, you just keep digging the, yourself deeper, Avi. <laughs> I, there are tunnels, apparently, 
under are New there York City. tunnels no are and there tunnels you mean the you mean the tunnels, subways okay not where the mole people live um new york they're, they're, new york it's a hell of a town the bronx is up and the battery's down the people ride in a hole in the ground we all know this yes so okay. apparently there are um there are new holes in the ground there are fresh uh holes in the ground in crown heights broad city reference the best stuff's always down a manhole okay continue yes absolutely yes. And they were in Crown Heights, no? Uh, weren't they living in Something Crown like that, yeah. Close enough. Close um, enough, definitely. So 770 Eastern Parkway. Yes. Did you, Let's talk about this. When you lived this. in New York, did you, ever, did you ever pass by? I don't know. Like, it wouldn't have made any impression to me specifically if I passed by that building. But I lived in Prospect Heights, which is not that far from it. Correct. My family either was decades ago or is currently in the sort of Flatbush, Crown Heights general area. So this is a part of New York I know reasonably well. It's not where I'm from, but this area, it, it, it's, I know kind of, yeah, like so it, it, it seems. It's on Eastern Parkway. It's about a yeah. mile away from the Brooklyn Museum. It's at the mm-hmm. corner of Kingston Avenue when in the Mm-hmm. post-war era when Chabad um, Hasidim came to America in droves with the Rebbe, um, they got this building and it became the world headquarters for Chabad, for the movement as a whole. And I saw uh, that there are replicas of it elsewhere, yeah, which is so amazing. Yes, so it became such a special yeah. building in the, you know, in the lore of Chabad that many countries where a Chabad house gets built, they try to replicate the facade, at least, if not the, you know, the, the overall look of what it is. So you'll see 770-looking buildings in Israel, you'll see them looking in South America. Like they, they just they. I to saw them, India, special, which is sound, yeah, it's a special yeah. building. It has special significance. Yeah. There's a special look um, to it, um, just by circumstance of it having become that place. And this is where Chabad um, still prays um, in Crown Heights. So there's many, many other synagogues where Chabad prays as well. But this has become. It, it really has sort of a special significance for the Chabad world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so why were what what happened and why i want to hear well what happened recently yes. is that on uh, i think it was sunday night was that it so at some point know. over Even, the past yeah, yeah over the weekend I'm trying to remember the exact date probably uh, not on friday night not on friday night um but the uh police were called in to deal with a um a pretty violent uh incident that was happening and i think that uh from what I was told, that potentially the police were called even in advance, knowing that something like this might happen, because um, there was a tunnel that was discovered under um, 770, uh, which we'll get into in a second what the tunnel's for, and because it was affecting the structural integrity of the building and it was unauthorized to begin with, a cement truck had been brought in to fill in the hole, um, but the builders of the hole, and again, we'll get into who these builders are in, in just a second, um, really did not want this hole to be filled in, this tunnel to be filled in, and they violently reacted against it. Ten people were arrested. Um, he was videoed to uh, much to the delight of many, many people, both Jewish and not, because there was this general mayhem looking um, thing happening in a synagogue. Um, and it then crossed over into mainstream media. And now everybody knows about this tunnel and the Jews that got arrested trying to, like, you know, protect or dig or whatever this tunnel. I did my research. There's been a lot of discussion around it. Um, this tunnel apparently was built. Um, Can you first, Avi, Avi, yeah. for, for the benefit of our listeners, say as much as you are able to about what you mean by did your research? Because I read articles in the forward and whatnot. Mm-hmm. What, what, what did your so research It was articles that I've of? seen in the forward in Rolling Stone, in The Guardian wrote an article about this. Okay, uh, But you, you talked articles. to people? I talked to people in the Chabad community within okay. Crown Heights. Right? Okay, I thank you. Know a lot of people. That, that is what makes yes. our, <laughs> our reporting on this different from... Um, I spoke yes. to people in Crown Heights, um, as well as like emissaries, you know, outside of Crown Heights who are in the Chabad world, just to sort of get a sense. And they didn't want to talk on the record, of course, because they're not official, you know, spokespeople for it. But I was just trying to get a sense of what, uh, what people knew, when they knew it, um, what was actually going on, as well as what their sense of what this is happening from inside the Chabad community. So, Apparently, right, so the thing that you need to know is that there are messianists, right? The, the Lubavitcher Rebbe died um, uh, 30 years ago. Um, and in the immediate aftermath of that, because there was such a 
uh, emphasis on the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Nachum Schneerson, the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe, on his potentially being the Messiah, when he died, people were shocked. And when they went into shock, they were like, well, we can't believe it. It must be that he was the Messiah. He's going to be reincarnated, or he never actually died. Um, and that turned into a very messianist strain of Chabad Judaism. And it's sort of died down to this day, but there's still a lot of that out there. And the torch for this messianism strain, which in the Chabad world is called uh, Meshichist Chabad, right? Named after Mashiach, which is the, the word, the Hebrew word for the Messiah. Mm-hmm has been really carried by the youth, um, specifically like a heavy number of youth from Tzfat, from Safed in the north of Israel, that come to America for a year or two to study in the yeshiva in Crown Heights, which is also, you know, to them almost ground central for Chabad Judaism nowadays, um, and that these students um, basically run wild through the streets all the time. Not literally, but like, you know, I had a, one contact told me that uh, an example that he said, there's like a five-mile radius now now around Crown Heights that have been plastered with yellow stickers declaring the Rebbe the Messiah um, in, in, I would in say large, large I can attest quantities. that this goes way beyond that geographically. But, but that in the past yes. month, it has been okay. literally plastered. Like, literally, you cannot see a street. I was in New York behind. in August, and yeah. this was all over the Upper West Side, which yeah. is so pretty they're far like, from there. Yeah. Chabad doesn't necessarily like or authorize this, I see. but these are students that are just like, yes, our, the Rebbe is no, the but Mashiach. But this is interesting because I yeah. had wondered about those stickers because they were really everywhere in the Upper West Side so, where I do not imagine there are a lot of people who... Um, there's a lot of Jews in the Upper West Side. Jews, yes, but not the ones who are... Got, <laughs> not, they're not that so, branch. So this all starts with this group of students that basically, mm-hmm. you know, do their thing, go crazy, have fun, not have fun, but they, this is their way of doing it. The, the administration, the senior administration of Chabad and of the Chabad Yeshiva are aware that these students are there. They can't really control them in some way. That was the sense that I was getting. So um, what exactly do they action, think that Schneerson so basically, was? They actually believe that he was and is the Messiah. Right. Okay. So, and are are there Jews who consider this like really, really bad, like basically a break from Judaism? To think so that there already at, was for example, a Messiah. David Berger, who is a professor and it was a former dean, I believe, at Revel, the Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies at Yeshiva University, he thinks that that actually places them outside the realm of Judaism. Well, that's what I was going like, to say because, like, how is beyond. it different from Christianity? Then? Absolutely, he says that this is a total schism. We okay. cannot really treat them. He thinks that you shouldn't even count them in a in a minion. Like, I don't know if he literally believes that. <laughs> I think, but I think I might be that. with he, him on this. I think if you think the, somebody else was the Messiah. He know. wrote a book called The Rebbe, the mm. Messiah, and the Scandal of Orthodox Indifference. Okay. Um, people don't talk about this. We, I brought it up with when we've had our Chabad episodes, but people don't realize that there is a large strain, not every Chabad person, so you can't assume that every Chabad person is there. So anyway, so there's this whole messiness mm-hmm. strain of youth that do their thing, they sticker. Mm-hmm. When Chabad closed 770 at the beginning of the COVID epidemic, these people thought it unfathomable. How can you close 770? This is horrible. We mm-hmm. need access to the synagogue. We need to pray there. They found one of the, because there are several back entrances, there are several buildings around, many of the buildings around that block are owned by Chabad. Um, and the students took it upon themselves. They found that there was not much distance between uh, one of the mikvahs that is right next door to the 770, the, the ritual mm-hmm. baths that men would use, women use them also, men use them um, for different reasons. In the Hasidic world, men use these mikvahs almost daily, that they found that they could probably build a tunnel and find a way to get from yeah, this Avi, mikvah to 770. I'm going to have to interrupt you here because from yes. what I've read in news reports of this, yeah. this tunnel was not something that people were using to go back and forth during covid so that was, apparently my that, sources so, have told okay. me that that so was actually like, the case, that this, this okay. had this st- a project that was started much earlier, that people okay. had heard that this was st- students that were trying okay. to gain because access. Because the started earlier seems still consistent. So from what I read, it sounds like this was basically, and this is the angle of it that I kind of latched onto, they wanted to do an extension. It was a reno. Oh, yes. It was so, a, hold on. So that's yes, part yes, of it as well. Okay, that okay. Definitely... because that seems to be part of it that's not up for debate because when like I just want to say that like the COVID part of it you've talked to people who have said that that's what they uh news reporting on this has also said otherwise so it seems like that's not I don't want to be like bonjour high says officially that's what this was because it seems like this is just some people are saying that this is what it was yeah others are saying otherwise 
Yes. So it could be that there are multiple reasons, right? These, these students could go and say, uh, right, and that was the other piece that I was going to say, is that the Rebbe always knew that the 770 should be expanded. He always had plans. There was discussions about this. I just um, love that the Messiah would be like, let's do an extension. And well, that no, that he was, the... remember, he, did, he didn't say that he was the Messiah. He didn't say that he wasn't, okay, but he okay. also, like, <laughs> the, he passed away before the, 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 yeah. the expansion could happen, right? This okay. is what no, happens. No, I'm laughing because it just seems like... Yeah. The idea of, I mean, there's a Woody Allen joke or something like there's God coming out of the men's room that's in some Woody Allen movie where um, somebody likes some guru of some sort. But the point is that like, the it just, it seems very mundane and of this sure. world and not spiritual to have some house in Brooklyn that you wished was a bit bigger and to try to expand into the neighboring one it just seems extremely like human and very much of this world and not a sort of spiritual realm thing to have mm -hmm. some property that you wished were a bit bigger in a city. Yeah, and it's not even wish. I think you realize when you're, you know, busting out of your 770 that you bought in the 50s and you now have a global, you know, empire of Hasidic emissaries and doing stuff around the world and you need a bigger space. Um, there was always plans and thinking about expanding this. It never happened. And I think that part of this tunnel was also designed to expand the building in this way. So they're both there. And it's unclear from the people that I spoke to, whether leadership knew about it a lot earlier or they only heard rumors about it and um, they were like, well, you know, at least now we can have our expansion and we'll let them do it and we'll let them take the heat for it. But once they realized that it was um, structurally, like causing structural damage to the, you know, the integrity of the building was being questioned, that they had to put a stop to it. So there's a lot of this, like, unclear what actually it was. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely have heard that students were using it um, just, like, around the time of the pandemic to actually get in when, when you weren't able to, um, you know, to get to 770 because the pandemic closed it. So, so I definitely heard that that was the case, but the expansion thing also is part of it. Um, but, again... In the past month, they figured out that this was damaging and this was a problem. They wanted to keep it largely internal. It wasn't like they were intending to blow this up, but they realized that uh, they had to fill it in and they thought that it might um, actually get a little violent and that's where the police were called in. And then, you know, everything else is where so we're do you, at. So who now. do you think called the police? Do you think that was other people in Chabad? I do believe um, that the people who were filling in the cement, from what I understand, actually called the police in preventatively to, because they knew that students were going to be in there and barricade themselves in and not allow this to happen. If you but look who at was, the, the people filling in the cement, were they were hired they, by Chabad? By the Chabad, yes. Okay, okay. So the, if, you look at the, if you look at the way it is, right, there's this like police tape, the, the, in the, even the initial videos, there's police tape and there, and before things get violent, the police are already there. So I think I that they know there's an altercation that's about to happen. Um, but that's there. So it's, it seems like it's clear a bit why this is significant within that community. But so this seems to have become a huge story just generally and has led to both comments about, you know, tunnels in Gaza, tunnels. Then I just saw on Twitter, like tunnels under the Vatican, like their tunnel. Everybody's doing a tunnel for some reason or another. The whole world. Everybody's got tunnels. Very the University of Chicago has tunnels. That is correct. Yes. Um, the that. Montreal. The, the whole Has underground the path, city of the Montreal, under, underground, yes. The path in Toronto, which is not very extensive. But well, it, those are out of necessity because you couldn't get from building to building. Yes, these are, no, all of these of the ones I'm talking yes, about yes, are yes. out of necessity. But, you know, um, maybe you need to so, expand your religious building. So, look. Um, but the other thing, though, is there have also been a lot of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about yes, the tunnels. So that's, so that's what I wanted to, that's what I was kind of leading up to. Yeah. You know, when I asked my contacts, you know, what Chabad internally has been talking about. He says they're very, very down on this. They're very sad about this because um, now all of a sudden there's a lot of attention being paid to Chabad in general. There's a lot of this weird anti-Semitic conspiracies that are being brought up. Um, they're afraid that not another, like people are going to stop showing up to Chabad because Chabad is considered like weird and messiness now. They're afraid mm -hmm. that there's another Poway uh, shooting that's going to happen at another Chabad house, that somebody's going to go and say, conspiracy theory, these tunnels, this is going to be another pizza gate and somebody's going to show up at like a Chabad house with a gun and start shooting because of this story. So there's a genuine fear that this has happened. There's a genuine disappointment that 
this, um, these students are left run amok to do their own thing, and now it has caused big damage to Chabad as a movement um, as a whole because this perception is sort of there. Um, and, you know, I think that it's bad for the Jews overall to have moments where this, like, the it's okay, movements should have strife. It's, it's gonna happen, that things like this are gonna happen within movements, but when it's so ridiculous, right? The way that I had somebody say it, I was like, this is not a story. The story isn't that this tunnel was dug and 10 arrests happened. The story really is that there's a whole faction of Chabad, whether it's the Messianists' youth or the adults that support them tacitly or financially, because they need money for these stickers. They need money to get you know, stuff out of the tunnels, right? It's not like, you know, they were pulling it out, you know, a bag at a time. This is not Shawshank Redemption. Although there's, I'm sure, many jokes that could be made about that. Instead of Rita Hayworth, there's a picture of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and they're just bringing out little bits of uh, 770 in, in bags every day. Um, but there's finances that need to happen. There are people that clearly tacitly agree with these people and that this has now caused damage. So that to me is the story and I agree with Chabad that they should not be uh, allowing these students to run amok and basically take over the movement um, in a big way in certain s sectors just because they believe that the Rebbe is the, is the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's like when we talk about what this looks like from the outside, I think it's important to keep in mind that there are all these different outsides. Like I'm not part of Chabad, but I'm Jewish. And I know that there are like, that not all Jews are. I think there's a different sort of rung of outside to whom this is, oh, look what Jews are up to now. And these are like the most visible Jews because, you know, they are Chabad specifically, not just not, I don't mean like observant Jews. I mean, Chabad specifically are the most visible Jews, right? Because they're, out there asking, are you Jewish? They have, you know, mitzvah mobiles, they have stickers. Yeah, they are, you know, they are they the like most being, visible Jews. You know, they kind of like being the public face of the Jewish world. Right. And I think that they, um, and I think that they get that for themselves because nobody else is trying to do this. Well, they're the ones that took it upon themselves to say, we are going to do this. And because right. they started doing it, everybody else was able to say, great, I don't need to do this because Chabad takes care mm -hmm. of it. But the other thing I was going to say about that is I think that at this moment in time, you know, Jews are very much associated with Israel, right? And with, you know, the specific, like, conflict in the Middle East playing out in other parts of the world sort of thing. And I think that this gets associated with somehow, like, pro-Israel stuff. But, Avi, is Chabad a pro-Israel organization? Um, it's a very complicated question. I don't know if you remember, I asked that question very specifically to our I specifically, guests. you know what, Avi... <laughs> I, I remember this. That's why I'm asking it. Okay. Yes. So to reiterate. But in case we have any new listeners who may not remember Chabad this. is a yes. very pro-Israel as a country, as a, as, a, as a place, as a piece okay. of land, as a holy piece of land. Okay. Chabad is very, very pro-Israel to see. their credit. They talk about it a lot. They serve in the army. They are very explicit about that. If you look at the Chabad philosophy, if you look at Chabad theology, mystical Chabad Are they texts, Zionists? They are, they, are not, they are very, very anti-Zionist as a movement. They're very anti-Zionist if you see Zionism in a statist sort of way, mm -hmm. in a mm -hmm. secular you know, nationality sort of way. Mm -hmm. They really do not believe in that. Um, mm -hmm. And that complicates things. So mm -hmm. it's very interesting that they are being equated with, um, right. you know, what's going I mean, on right now. That's what I mean in of terms that. of yeah. the whole, like, look, see, Jews are doing tunnels too. You know, it's like, it's, you know what I mean? Like, I, I understand the visual of this. But it's obviously one tunnel, are, to be fair. It's like yes. a tunnel that's like 40 feet long. That's the thing. Like, so that is, that is when, pills, I, when, right? I, we when we, I... The most that we can do, we can get a 40-foot tunnel, and we think that we're like that's major you know, work. But yeah. So there are, as I understand it, religious Zionists, settlers, some of them. Are any of them Chabad? Are there any individual you know, religious Zionists who are sure. Chabad. Look, I'm not going to make any statements about every single Chabad person. No, but right? I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not, I, I, I'm not all I'm Chabad people. Like hold on. Yeah, so I'm, saying, yeah. I'm not going to go and say that every single Chabad person absolutely believes in this anti-Zionist as a state sort of approach, right? There are plenty of Chabad people. So you're saying there's a, there's a, there's a range. If you look at the settlers, for example, absolutely, mm -hmm. there's a range in any movement. But if you look at the settlers, it's a great example of that. Um, there are many settlers that 
do follow Chabad teachings and that are would consider themselves Chabad, um, if you ask yourself, well, why are they settlers? Because they believe in the land of Israel and they believe that the land of Israel should be, should be in Jewish hands. That doesn't necessarily mean that they approve of the government or that they would call themselves Zionists in the Herzlian way of doing things. And um, you know, so and I think that that's what complicates things is when you see people that are pro-Israel that really love Israel but that are religious and that have a hard time with the idea of Zionism because they see it as an inherently secular thing. Mm-hmm. Right? But that's moving too far afield. Actually, it, look, it's a fascinating topic, and I think that the nature of Zionism has been evolving, both within Chabad and within the other ultra-Orthodox communities. And I think that we should actually come back to that in a discussion because the past few months has really reshaped the thinking on what Zionism means to a lot of ultra-Orthodox Jews. Um, sure. But it's important, I think, to get to the... To dig our way to the point of... Back that. to the point of here, yes. which is that what is being unearthed here... <laughs> Thank you. Thank is you. that, um, once again, there is a lot of messianism within the Chabad movement. And it's not everybody. There are many, many Chabad people that are messianic in the the Messiah has yet to arrive, and they really do believe in the Messiah. And it is a central feature of Chabad thinking to be messianic in your thinking. But to uh, but there is a definite strain of people that still think about the now deceased Lubavitcher Rebbe as the Messiah, and that this is being brought to light, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in this mm-hmm. way um, is, I think, I mean, I don't know, is it good for the Jews that now people see what, what's going on within Chabad? Is it bad for the Jews because the public face of a great organization, and I said it right now, they're a great organization, is being shown to have deep schisms? I don't know. I think that sometimes, you know, sunlight is the best, anti, uh, you know, uh, disinfectant. Um, and uh, so you, have to, of... you have to sort of put some floodlights in those tunnels. And... Absolutely. Well, daylight. Or cement. Daylight. Yeah, exactly. So look, um, this to me is the story, is that it's unfortunate that it came out this way, but um, there's, there's a whole massive international movement that has a group of youth that just do their thing and don't listen to anybody else. So and, can I ask, this is yeah. just my complete ignorance speaking. When you say, when I picture a group of young people going around having a good time. It's not even they, having a good time. Or, they're, or, they're, or they're basically militantly messianist. Okay. Do they saying, have any yeah. kind of, is there any, are they also like socially conservative, presumably, or not? In terms like, of do what? They, do they like drink? Do they party? Do they? Well, they drink because the Lubavitchers are known okay. to drink and the Rebbe had Farbrengans and had, you know, having a bit of vodka or seven mm-hmm. is part of the Chabad life okay. way of speaking, but they are not Mormon or are you they, know, they're not are they, are they chaste? They are chaste. Yes, these are all very religious individuals. Chaste, that see this as um, part of their okay, okay. Par- as part of their um, but, mission but, to okay, to spread okay. the idea that the Rebbe was it was and is and will be the the Messiah. This mm-hmm. is part of what they have to do. Um, they mm-hmm. might be smoking. They might be doing other stuff. They are not. They might be getting married young. Um, many for various reasons, um, but it's not like they're running around saying that abortion is horrible. Um, it's probably not part of their radar. They probably do think that that's the case, but it's not like they're thinking about that. They, these are not gun nuts. These are people that are militantly, they study in yeshiva and they really believe that the Rebbe is the Messiah and they have to do stuff about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for explaining a somewhat mysterious story. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm curious about w- what's going to happen to the uh, Chabad houses like in Canada, right? Does this going to affect in the long term um, people's perceptions of it? I, I don't really think so. I think that m- people sort of suspected this already, that this was the case of how it worked. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious. I, I, I'm curious mm-hmm. what the long-term effects, well, and I think we'll we should be tuned. monitoring what should be happening with that. And uh, that's all we need to know about um, mm-hmm. the tunnel. There's the hilltop youth, and now we have the tunnel youth. Um, and they're actually a lot mm-hmm. closer than we think they are. Phoebe, do you have any nachas this week? Um, sure. I'll, I have nachas, although it's more just kind of like a curiosity than something to praise. Gabriel Attal, okay. Mm-hmm. Gabriel Attal, I could try to make it more French, seeing as he is French. Um, 34, okay, 34-year-old French dude, first openly gay prime minister, is half Jewish, 
evidently. And I'm going to tell you that, but my nachas, such as it is, is more like just a little bit of a rabbit hole, a little bit of a tunnel, if you will, that I went down trying to figure out who he is. So I had seen something about him that somebody I know had posted to Twitter about him being nice looking. So I was like, okay, I'm going to click on this. Let's see. Oh, okay. Yes, this is a nice looking man. Um, but then I saw that his father was Yves Attal, um, who was evidently um, a half Tunisian Jewish, half Alsatian Jewish. This is, I started getting very much thinking about like my own, um, not to bring it back too much to the earlier topic about academia, but like I studied French Jewish history, so I, I love this stuff. But I also like on some level thought this name sounds really familiar. And then I figured out why. It's because I was completely confusing Yves Attal with Yvonne Attal, who is... <laughs> A totally different person. Apparently, they're not related to each other or anything. Born in Tel Aviv. I'm reading from Wikipedia. I'm going to quote from Wikipedia. And I quote, born in Tel Aviv, Israel, to Algerian Jewish parents. He grew up in the out- outskirts of Paris, blah, blah, blah. Um, he, his partner, his, according to Wikipedia, quote, longtime partner, Charlotte Gainsbourg. Okay? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he's, I've seen him in, like, movies. I knew who he was because he's, like, famous. But... I somehow was completely conflating these people and it didn't entirely make sense to me generationally how Ivan Attal was going to be Gabriel Attal's father. But I think on some level I was picturing that, but it's not the case. These people are not related to each other. I just read about it in some French yeah. thing. Glad to hear that the confirmation is there and that you, uh, that, that another so, proud member of the religiously uh, he's not. Yeah. But it seems like he has been um, the victim of anti-Semitism all the same, which this is like, I mean, this really does get back to the stuff I studied in grad school. But like anybody who comes across as Jewish gets this, Um, not just in France, but certainly not not in France. And I guess uh, Gabriel Attal does. So it's not just homophobia he faces, but it's this is a deeply intersectional story. And that what have you got, Avi? Cool. Um, so I, I watched a lot of, I didn't watch a lot of TV, but I watched some TV while, uh, while on the break. Um, for some reason, I managed to catch two uh, very Jewish comedy specials um, okay. about two, by two very famous ex-religious individuals um, who I found actually a lot funnier than uh, Modi, who you will remember I had a nice piece in the magazine about um, that his comedy is good and whatever. But anyways, um, Ari Shafir has a really interesting comedy special. Um, it's out on Netflix. I think it's called like Jew or something like that. It was an hmm. old name. Um, and uh, I never caught it the first time around. Uh, I didn't realize it was from 2018, but his name, Moshe Kasher's name kept popping up in my feeds. I don't know if you know Moshe Kasher or heard of him. Um, he just won a daytime Emmy for a Holocaust special that he I, uh, I don't know hosted and produced. Is, but... So he's also an ex-religious individual, uh, ex-Haredi. Um, he grew up, his dad went religious and he, uh, was very religious for a while. He's not anymore. Uh, his brother is actually a, a, a very prominent rabbi, Rabbi David Kasher. Um, but Moshe Kasher had this special that he did with his wife, uh, Natasha Legero, um, and they had it called the Honeymoon Special on Netflix. And I watched that, and I thought that that was quite funny. Um, there was a lot of moments of a strong Jewish uh, humor that were along, you know, the lines of the types of jokes that I am prone to make uh, sometimes, you know, uh, he was complaining to his wife about like, well, why, why did you convert? She goes, well, don't you want Jews at this point in time? Didn't you have like a bit of a membership drop off about 75 years ago? Okay. Um, sounds, you know, sounds good. Sarah Silverman, sounds another good. comedian uh-huh. that we mentioned before, who also has a prominent sibling who is a prominent rabbi. So hmm. uh, all of that is there. Well, sounds good. I'll have to check those out. Phoebe, that was a fun show. Yes, it certainly Enlightening, was. informative. We yes, yes. Lots, lots of um, unusual uh, drama and Learnings. such. Yes. yes. Excellent. Well, I will see you again next week and check out Canada Land. But all the Canada Land people that are listening to the very end, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. 
Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending January 13th, Shabbat Parashat Va'era. The show is produced and edited by Zach Hoffman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is one of the best ways we get new listeners. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. 